Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 139. This week, Ken and I are joined by Alan Maskin, partner and co-owner of one of my favorite practices out there, Seattle-based Olson Kundik. Alan shares his story about growing up on the East Coast, working as an artist and arts educator before moving on to architecture school in his 30s. He tells us about how he finally landed a job at Olson Kundig after four failed job applications, and then strategically moved his way out of his initial role of IT manager. He provides insight into what it took to move up in the firm, eventually becoming a partner and co-owner, and what kind of qualities Olson Kundig looks for when hiring new talent that fits well with their time-crafted firm culture. Of course, we also talk about his work, including the highly publicized renovation of Seattle's iconic Space Needle and some of his recent projects he's designed for children and families. We even get his thoughts on two topics weighing heavily in the news these days, unpaid internships and the restoration of the Notre Dame Cathedral. I like to kind of start way back. I understand you grew up on the East Coast, right? I did. I grew up on Long Island outside of New York City. You grew up in a creative family? Any architects in your family? I know. I, my dad was a teacher and uh, and my mother uh, was a housewife and raising children. And But she had a creative impulse. But I had an aunt that was a sort of uh, self-identified New York art lady. And uh, as a kid, she kind of took me under her wing and would take me into New York City in the 1960s, which was a very different New York City. But from an art world standpoint, it was an amazing place to be. And we would wander through new galleries in the Lower East Side before it was the Lower East Side and through Soho when there were no streetlights. And and it was just an amazing introduction to the art world. And so she was really one of the main people that sort of took me along into the realm of creative thinking, and which was amazing. Oh, wow. If uh, only if we were also lucky to have source of inspiration in your family at, at an early age like that. So when did you decide to study architecture? Where did you end up going to school? I ended up Actually, if I were to go way back, I would say that I barely graduated high school. I I didn't know how to, I just wasn't raised to be an academic or a student. And uh, I ended up having to figure out how to how to do it, how to do academics and how to do school. And I ended up getting three different degrees. And my first degree was in fine arts in New York City in 1972 at a school that would accept anyone because they were just starting out and uh, starting their program. But being in New York City where artists were your teachers in 1972 was turned out to be an unbelievable gift. And so I began there. And in the summers I worked, starting as a teenager, I started to work with children. And I worked at a summer camp in upstate New York as a counselor, starting when I was about 16. And uh, it was my introduction to sort of working with children, which uh, kind of wove into my design career years later. So was that, was the, were you drawn to that job for any reason, or was that just a job that you happened to come upon and you, you know, and then realization came later that you, that, that working with children is something that struck a chord? You know, it was, uh, I was 16, a teenager on Long Island on the beach. And I think my father had a sense of what my summer was going to look like and wasn't too happy about it. And so he, uh, he, he was a guidance counselor. He saw this summer camp that uh, you could work at where it's currently, it still exists. It's called Ramapo. It had a longer name in those days, but it was a camp for at-risk youth. And that he uh, was really interesting to me at the time to have work with kids that had came from backgrounds that you know were not necessarily ones that would lead them to have a summer camp experience. And so, and many of them had many challenges. And so, I went back to that camp for four years and even worked with really young kids in that experience. And I just found that I loved it. And I thought I loved the people that were working there. I thought the the, the kinds of the approaches to education and the 
sensitivity to people that um, were somewhat disenfranchised was really appealing to me in the late 60s. And so it definitely was formative. And it began a path because my second degree after a degree in fine arts was to get a degree in art education. And so I had trained to become an art teacher. And that was where I sort of began my career. And I moved to Boston and uh, I got a job at the first federally funded daycare center in the United States. It was an on-site facility and it was created by some feminists that were in the government services administration. And they wanted to make an on-site daycare uh, center where women could, you know, if they were breastfeeding, they could come down and, and be with their kids. They could see, be with them at any point in the day, but they could still maintain their careers and work. And, you know, in the mid 70s, it's hard to imagine it was the only one, but it was. And it was a, an amazing experience. And I worked there for a decade and I, you know, I, I started teaching art, but then I eventually became a head teacher and I worked with infants and toddlers and preschoolers and, and many of them for 10 years, I could, I, I literally saw many of them grow up. And now they're probably in their 30s or 40s, if I think about it. But it, it was an amazing experience. But I also had an art studio in the Fort Point area in Boston. And, and so I was always maintaining an art practice of some sort. And I realized I wanted, I had met a number of architects who were parents of kids that I was taking care of. And, and I was intrigued with uh, the idea that I could draw every day if I worked with an architect. And the irony is that when I got my first job, they sat me down and said, here, this is a computer. And figure it out so but i still draw every single day and i became i safe to say i became an architect because i love to draw and so i ended up applying to a, a number of different schools to go to graduate school and so now at this point i have two other degrees so i know a lot of your listeners are um in the profession so they'll recognize that i was going into a three-year program graduate program which is usually for people that have degrees in other areas and it's always an interesting collection of people and this is after a decade of of working with children and in art completely outside of architecture. So I get I assume you were entering architecture school as a relatively older student. Yes, I was 30 years old. And so I don't know that I was the oldest in my class, but you're correct. I was starting in my 30s. And so I didn't really begin my practice till I was 34 or 35. But going to architecture school meant moving to Seattle. And Seattle in the mid-1980s, I had sort of heard of Seattle, but I hadn't uh, certainly never been there. And I was most interested. They had a good program and I was excited about it. But at the time, they had a reputation for having one of the best foreign study programs in the world at the time. And it was run by a woman named Astra Zarina. And she had created this in Rome, also in a tiny town in Chivita. And a number of people, you know, Stephen Hall, my business partner, Tom Kundig, a lot, a lot of people went through that program and they credit her. She worked in Yamasaki's office. She had was, one, I think, the first woman to win a Rome Prize in the history of uh, the Rome Prize. She was this formidable figure on many, many levels. But it also makes me wonder sometimes that, you know, can you affect the world through design more by being a designer or being, being a design educator? Because she literally was formative in, in scores and scores of architects and landscape architects that studied with her. So that was the real reason. The reason I came to Seattle and UW was to go to Rome and take a triple mortgage on my life to do so. Actually, Wow. And, and how was your experience in Rome? It was unbelievable. I mean, it was without question, one of the best education experiences I ever had. I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, the very first day we walked into the studio, we are new in the country. We don't really speak the language. She created a school in an old palazzo on uh, that's re literally at the base of the Campo dei Fiori, which is the old flower piazza and she walks in and i think there were probably 13 students 
she gave everybody a map of Rome and each neighborhood in Rome was circled separately. And we all got a different area that was circled. And she basically said, okay, I want you to go out the door. I want you to come back in two weeks and I want you to be prepared to give a tour of your Rioni or neighborhood to the rest of the class. And you need to learn this by going out and walking the streets and figuring it out. And at night you can come back and use the library and do research, but you essentially need to know everything about this neighborhood. And you need to know about uh, 2000 years of history and you need to be able to present this and give everyone a walking tour. And it was actually a brilliant lesson because she wasn't basically saying you have to cover these maps or you have to study in this direction. She basically said, you have to go where your interests are, what you're passionate about in terms of design, and you have to sort of allow that to be the thing that guides you. So given the same neighborhood, there were many different perspectives on on what that neighborhood No, there were 13 different neighborhoods. So Rome is made up of 13 neighborhoods and we each Uh got our own. At the end of the exercise, you have literally gotten a lesson from your 12 classmates and from your own research of the entire city. Wow. And pretty in-depth, actually. It was, it was, so it's things like that that sort of distinguished her as someone that wasn't going to teach architecture students in the way that, uh, in a very traditional fashion. Have you gone back to Rome many times since then? I mean, I, I, I assume an experience like that must provide a pretty intimate relationship with a city. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in the chance to, if you, if you can swing it and it's hard sometimes, but to, to do a foreign study experience. And there's so many that are uh, happening right now. But I also, I applied, she also discovered this. She didn't discover. She ended up in this hill town north of Rome. And it's an amazing place called Civita de Bandereggio. And it's a tiny town where now about 13 people live. And there's a fellowship in the Northwest that you can apply for if you're a designer or an artist in the Northwest that will allow you to go and live in this town for a month. And it's called the Civita Institute. And I applied about 20 years after I was a student. And she was still living there, but she was quite old at the time. And I applied to go back and to do some research. But it was also about returning to a teacher that had actually been meaningful to you at a certain point in your life, 20 years later in mid-career, and actually... Uh, kind of see, there's a Lillian Hellman quote, you know, I wanted to see what was there for me once and what is there for me now. And it was, it was a bit like that, that there was this going back to a professor at a different point in your career and spending time with them again. So after studying at the University of Washington, did you, did you start working at Olson Kundig right away or what was your, how did your career take off? Um, Paul, it's interesting. When I was at the daycare center, one of the parents was teaching at Harvard and he was in the in the architecture department and he was advising me and he had gone to you uh, had experience with UW and and he basically said, There's you know, there's three things I'm recommending for you. I think you should go to the University of Washington. They have a really good program. I think you should study with Astra Zarina because I think she's leading the best foreign study pro- experience for design you could have. And then she said, and you should try to get a job at Olson Walker, which is he thought was one of the best design firms in the region at the time. I ended up doing every single thing he told me, oddly. <laughs> uh, and I'm now an owner of, uh, of what is now Olson Kundig, but was originally Olson Walker. And it's had a number of names over the years. And so uh, sometimes people give you advice and you really should take it. I think. Wow. That, that's amazing that that uh, this this individual. His name was Neil Middleton. He's a I think he just retired as an architect in Boston. And uh, I'm very grateful to him. Obviously. Wow. What foresight. And I assume all of these steps felt very natural to you. Well, I guess to answer your question, I didn't uh, I graduated from school and I got a job in another firm that no longer exists. And it was much more 
uh, less design focused. It was doing architecture that was not going to change the world on any level. It was, um, but it was a wonderful, smart group of people. And we were all just discovering AutoCAD, which was new to the profession at the time. And we all got to be really scrappy and we learned how to put permit sets together. And we learned how to be on a first name basis with people in the building department. And we, so as an education, it was phenomenal. And uh, it wasn't the greatest design experience. But after four or five years, I got into this because I was interested in design. It was then that I started to pursue Olson Kunding. And I think on my fifth interview i got hired but it it wasn't an easy wow wow so you really had to push your way in that's that's a really uh nice observation from the previous position you had, because I, I truly believe that even given not a very inspiring position, there's always there's always lessons to be taken out of every job opportunity you have. No question. No question. Yeah. And there were people there where they were incredibly skilled and they frankly, they could do certain tasks in the fraction of the amount of time that, you know, I think my current firm does. I mean, it just you had to be scrappy in that regard. And those were great skills for me, really great skills. So you eventually made your way into Olsen Kundig. How did your work as an individual artist and architect and, and, you know, educator in your, in your past life, how did you bring that into this, this new firm? I think, um, well, it's, it's kind of ironic and I meet with my four, I own Olsen Kundig with our founding partner, Jim Olson, Tom Kundig, Kirsten Murray and Kevin Kudo King. And the five of us meet every Friday night when we're in town and we have a drink together and, over the and I've been here for 26 years and they've all been here for longer and they um and it's one of the things they love to give me grief about is that I I was hired to be Olson Kundig's IT person because I actually knew how to do AutoCAD <laughs> and none of them did and the irony is that they laugh at me about this but in fact they didn't even know the difference between paper space and model space I mean they they <laughs> so, so the fact that they were like judging me was I find rather ironic all it took was knowing AutoCAD <laughs> <laughs> exactly but what I really loved was imagery and representation related to architecture. And that, frankly, one of the inspirations for, for me really early on was seeing an exhibit, and it was with my Aunt Carol, of Boulay's drawings uh, in New York City in a gallery there. And it was all these incredibly evocative section perspectives that he had done. And I had no idea that architects moved into that realm of, of sort of uh, creating imagery that could you know, speak volumes about conceptual ideas. And so that was really became my strength in architecture school was, was to sort of make presentations and, and, uh, and I had some great training and I studied with Francis Ching who happened to be at UW, one of the great wow. architectural delineators. And I had, I had no idea he was there until the first day I arrived. And so studying with Frank and uh, apprenticing with him as a teaching assistant years later. And, um, and so there was, that piece. And I knew I would be much happier there. So I spent a lot of energy in the early Olson Kunding days trying to let people know that I, that, uh, there are probably better people that for the, uh, IT department than me. And we hired someone about two months later and that in terms of visual representation and helping projects to move along by creating images where clients would build trust and, and allow us to try things, uh, became an area of focus. Now, we were 21 people in the office in those days, and now we're about 200. And so there was, you know, everybody ended up managing a project because it, you just simply had to. And, and the learning experience of that, being surrounded by unbelievably talented people, um, was really pretty interesting. That's interesting because I think, you know, a, a topic that comes up a lot in, in our discussion forum and just in conversations in general is the concern about being pigeonholed in an office and 
you, you know, you mentioned you came into uh, Olsen Kundig as an IT expert, but that was obviously not your your uh, ambition. What do you think, as as someone who is who leads an office of this size, and as somebody that that you know pushed his way through to find your your natural fit in the office? What kind of advice do you give to somebody who doesn't feel like their work is is necessarily their role is is defined accurately? I think that, you know, there's advice I've given uh, sort of the people in the office over the years that is you have to be really careful with what you're good at. And if you are good at something that you actually don't want to do, don't like doing, or don't have some level of excitement about, then you probably shouldn't be making that the most overt thing in the world. Because whenever somebody excels at something in an architecture office, you're going to be asked to do it again and then again and again. And so I wanted to make sure that it was in the, you know, obviously transitioning away from, I wasn't, ex- <laughs> it was probably clear pretty early on that I wasn't really going to be the IT genius that they had hoped for, but they did see this other opportunity. But there was a thing that happened years later when I had, frankly, I had fallen in love and the person didn't live here and I needed to sort of explore that. And so I literally sat the owners of the firm down and I said, you know, I didn't think this was going to happen for me. So I need to figure this out and I need to give it some time. And so I was proposing that I work four days a week so I could you know, travel out to the Olympic Peninsula to see if this this love connection was going to happen. And I explained to them that I needed to shift the work that I was doing, that I wanted to work on you know, competitions and I wanted to work on some marketing things and I wanted to manage certain types of projects. But I really thought that I could be a benefit in the cultural realm and within the firm. And they all were kind of quiet and they all kind of looked at me and I thought, you know, this is probably it. And I'm going to go move to the peninsula and find a job out there. And and then Jim Olson turned to me, he's the founding partner, and he said, you can do anything you want. You just can't leave. And that was kind of everything to me, frankly. It was, it kind of tripled my already deep commitment to the firm. I, it was like, if, if they were going to believe in me as much as I believed in them, then they were going to let me go probably any direction I wanted to. So it was this huge opportunity, but it was also a crazy responsibility that I felt I had to live up to. Is that particularly humbling? I mean, here you are a guy from the East Coast, a bit about a, you know, um, itinerant traveler, uh, architect, and, and you make that decision. And the firm is so invested in you as an individual that they are willing to risk losing you. You know, you made that commitment to them and they made a commitment to you, but shit happens you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, that must be pretty humbling. It was deeply humbling. And, uh, but you know, it was equal parts flattering and surprising, but also it, it was also a burden isn't the right word, but it was a responsibility. And it meant that I had to live up to that, that if they were going to believe in me that strongly. So, I mean, honestly, I'm getting choked up just talking about it. So, uh, uh it was humbling in a, in, in a meaningful way. And I'm sure I'm here for 26 years and, We'll see how much longer, but for, for part of that, because of that belief. You know, Alan, I mean, I'm just, just, I would never put you in, in from Long Island. I mean, I'm from Jersey and I, if you listen, I mean, since you listen to podcasts, you pretty much know how I, I sound like I'm, I mean, I don't sound like I'm from New Jersey. I probably act more like I'm from New Jersey than I sound like I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's accurate. Yeah. The Northwest has softened you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I seem to have lost it. It was funny. It was, I was talking to some people yesterday from Western Massachusetts, and they don't sound like they're from Boston at all. And what a difference you know that can make. There are people can hear me on the phone who are from New York or from the East Coast or from New Jersey. And, Kate, and I will say something. My father passed away uh, last year, but when I would talk with him, it would come back. 
you know what I mean? It would be like suddenly I was talking like I was from Long Island, and it just like it would it would kick <laughs> back in. But, so it, it can come back in certain in certain moments. So I totally forgot one of the things I forgot about you. And it wasn't until I saw those drawings that I was like, oh, my God, these drawings. <laughs> Which drawings do you mean? <laughs> those, those beautiful drawings of you, of you and architecture, super kind of um, kind of um, palimpsetic, almost superimposed um, on top of each other. Oh, those were the fairy tale yes. competition. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, you run an office and, and the day to day and, and uh, the, mass, the, the things that we have to do as architects, as professionals, often take us away from the things that we're passionate about. And you know, you've already said, uh, don't do the things that you're good at if you're not really if you don't find value in doing those things. So, I mean, how do you how do you maintain, you know, how did you actually when you're trying, you know, you're an older student or and you're entering into the profession a little older and you're trying to get a license and you're you're doing what you have to do to do uh i'm sure you probably i don't know if you had to do it were you would do an idp at that point or was it pre-idp oh um <laughs> well uh, we, let's go to the licensing piece sure. so in the day i don't even know if this is still the case i'm embarrassed to say but uh in the days when uh, i had first arrived I, there was a period of years after you graduated from a, a architecture school that you had to take the exam and at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that I was one of the worst students in the world. And so test taking was not my modality. I, I did later become lead certified, but uh, I can't tell you what it took for me to get to pass that test. And so that, you know, there were, there were I think, multiple days and many, many tests that had to be done. And there was a certain amount of rigor to it. But an opportunity had opened up at Olson Kundig where one of the partners at the time, uh, Rick Sundberg, had been asked to come out and and do some graphic design for the Fry Art Museum, which is a museum in Seattle. And a trend of his was on the board. And he knew I had gone to art school. And if they needed posters, I could work on that. So I, I, he and I went after the project. And then almost instantly, the property next door to the museum became available. And they decided to buy it. And they came back to us and said, well, what if we remodel this building? What ideas would you guys have? And here's this opportunity where a person who's in a firm for three years, who's there to literally be working on the graphics, but I was working very closely with Rick and Rick has taught me a lot about collaboration and mentorship of others. And he was like, let's go after this, Alan. And so we worked together and he, he, he gave the thumbs up to any of the conceptual ideas. But while I should have been studying for my licensing exam, I was designing an art museum and, work, and working with Rick. And that was like a, goal, a dream. And so there was a real ethical question, like the clock is ticking and this window will close. And there were, there were ways to open it. But I actually asked myself the question, can I practice in the way that I want to practice without being a licensed architect? And that became the move. I, I, I put my nights and weekends into designing, working on the design with others. There was a team of people on designing the museum. And I never ended up getting licensed. Now, I own a firm with the majority of the architects here are licensed, and I want the majority of the people here to be licensed. But I do represent someone that designs buildings and many other things that doesn't have a, a degree, a license in architecture. Has that ever been any kind of uh, a hurdle in any way? Or have you, given the position that, <laughs> I assume not. <laughs> no, no, no. On the contrary. So I, after three years here, I got pulled into a room. I thought I, uh, the partner at the time was wearing a black suit, which he usually wore when he was firing people. And I thought, <laughs> oh, they jigs up. Like they, uh -oh. And he had it on. And, and I just... You know, like most people, I think, in architecture, I thought I was a fraud and everybody would find this out about me eventually. And I, I've encountered that so many times with people that that this sort of 
fraud phobia. And uh, he sat me down. He said, yeah, we're going to make you an associate. And I said, but he said, you didn't get a license. So you're never going to go any further. This is as far as it's going to go. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I can, I love what I do on a day-to-day basis. So I'm, I'm good with that. If I can keep designing museums, I'm good. And then I became a principal and then I was asked to become a partner. And so, uh, so was it an obstacle? I mean, you can't have a firm of unlicensed architects. And I get that. I, I just accept that I'm an anomaly in some levels. And I think there are others that are like me, frankly, that work within this profession that may not actually be licensed, but certainly contribute to the profession. Oh, I know. I, I have friends of mine. <laughs> yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright, Louis Sullivan. There's, it, there's a lot of good company in that regard. So how was it that you went from getting rejected four times before finally getting a job at Olson Kundig as an IT specialist and now getting to the point where you are a partner and co-owner of this firm? Uh, sorry, what, how, how did that happen? Is that what you're... Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a significant uh, you know, growth trajectory. How does someone move their way up like that? In a firm, at, you know, with such a strong portfolio like Olson Kundig's. Uh, well, there's a, you know, look at who my business partners are, and you can imagine the standard and the level of what people are bringing every single day. I mean, it, it was it, it was always like super high. And I gave a presentation recently. Tom got an award, and um, I was asked to present the award to him. And it was interesting just to think back how long I've known him and, and when there was this sense that Tom Kundig was going to become Tom Kundig and, um, and, and his creativity emerged at such a strong level. And I could say the same about Jim and Kirsten and Kevin like that. Um, and so there is that aspect, but I think for me, there's something about, it was two things, frankly, it was, I think it, it it's a combination of being incredibly generous and inclusive with your coworkers. So they are not competitive with you, that they actually realize you are on their side, you're supporting them, you are highlighting their strengths and putting your own ego in check. But there also is an aspect of, of kind of being an elephant in the room. And, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to talk about specific projects at any point, but, you know, I, I went after my first project because I thought that children did not get much design and much design attention in the world and, and, you know, 20 years ago. And I had a background in that. And a friend of mine sent me a fax in the days of faxes. And it was 17 pages long about this new project at the Skirball Cultural Center for Children. And it was a limited invite. And I wasn't invited. And I just invited myself. And so when they're expecting to get 10 proposals for that this new kind of children's museum they wanted to create, they got 11 and they got someone who had never designed a children's museum before. And so it's a long story to how that happened. And we ended up winning that project and it became a kind of design competition. But after a certain point, I was bringing in work and I was behaving in ways that was, you know, I was external, I was communicating, I was somewhat philanthropic in the way, I, not philanthropic, but um, just the way that I was thinking about projects and bringing them in. And I think there is a sort of rainmaking component that suddenly makes, I think, any partner think about that person has potential to not only do design, strong design, but also to bring work into the firm, which is our two necessary ingredients. So I think there was a point when they sort of looked around the room and I was sitting there and I was behaving in ways that were similar to how they were behaving. And I think that's when I was invited to become a partner. And when did you become a partner? Boy, it's a great question. I should not answer that. Well, these kind of dates just kind of, I'm going to say sure. it was a decade ago and, or, or maybe 12 or 13 years, but I'm honestly, I'm guessing. Um, and did that come with the becoming a co-owner of the firm or was that handled separately? It, so 
Yeah, I know it's different in different firms, but it also can be a partnership is owner is a part and parcel with ownership. And so there are five of us that own the firm at the moment and we operate as a collective and we own different percentages, but then that's the sort of how that happens. And so, yes, when I was invited to be a part, well, this is ironic talking to you about this because I interviewed, you know, four or five times, but I had been offered to be a partner a couple of times and I had turned it down because I just felt like functioning on that level. I just wasn't sure. I was having the time of my life, frankly, working on architecture projects and, and cultural projects in the office. And, and the first two times I said no. And the third time they sat me down, they said, it's the last time we're asking. So are you, <laughs> we're asking others. So it was at that point that I decided, and you know, there's many projects I've worked, you know, I've worked on the Space Needle. I've worked on these, you know, I've won these different design competitions. And it's such an incredibly exciting time. But I have to say that the making of a firm and making a firm with these four other people has been one of the most profoundly satisfying aspects of my career. Because you're, it's not just the work that you're creating. You're creating a culture, uh, a, you know, a place where, you know, hopefully people are going to come and thrive that will be attractive to top people around the world. And all of that was, were areas where Kirsten and I and Kevin actually focused a, a lot of our attention. Jim and Tom have always had a, established a, a lot of values in that regard as well, but they've also been so deeply ensconced in design. How would you describe the culture at Olsen Kundig? There's a couple of, we put a lot of energy into it, I'll tell you, and it's really important. And we want people, obviously, we want to attract, you know, everybody does, right? We all want to attract top candidates from around the world. But there's a couple of things that we do that actually feel like they're sort of critical rituals that we have. So it's uh, the afternoon for us on the West Coast. And so, you know, and at 4.30 today, we're, we're going to have a design crit. So this has been going on for decades, like way before I arrived, we arrived at the firm. Jim Olson, I think, started this. And so and we are, we are religious about it. Every Thursday, people are asked to step away from their computers, put pencils down, and actually come to the sort of main area where we all gather. And there's beer and there's food to help, you know, encourage people to get away. And one person will post a project and then the entire office gets to chime in. And it will be at some point in the design process. So there will be a schematic design or conceptual design, or there may be details, or there may be issues that people are looking to have feedback on. But you can be an intern that walked in the door from Mumbai that morning, or you can be Jim Olson, who started the firm in 1960s. But the playing field is level, and everyone is, is invited to participate in a designed conversation. And I'm describing this because I know a lot of firms have internal crits, but it is kind of an internal religion here in respect to um, we get it has changed projects it has changed people's thinking it has pushed us uh, we have you know people can be extremely people are usually very supportive but they're also very critical and it, it's been this phenomenal sort of cultural thing that happens and so we continue to poke energy in it and and I'm actually up presenting a project today in about an, after I get off the phone with you guys and so which I'm excited about the other thing that we created and this is one that I created in the firm uh, probably 22 years ago, 23 years ago. And it's now, it's an international internship program. And I don't know, know if you guys know about it, but we we have created, well, originally it started because we had an, you know, back in the old days, we had an intern who was working in a, in a like a closet that had no windows and like he wasn't able, and he was like working by himself and it was ridiculous. And he came up and he, you know, basically quit, said, take this job and shove it. And I'm like, how can you treat an architect this way? And we were like, Oh my gosh, what, what are we doing? We have to do this better. And so 
I started to create a program and then Kirsten and I would lateral it back and forth over the years where it was a real program. Like we would invite people, they would come for six months, they were paid positions, they would work on project teams. Every Thursday they would get mentorship and they would get training. So you're getting eased into the profession as opposed to just being dropped in the deep end of the pool. They would go to job sites. They would, you know, we would have different people explaining construction documents to them. And how do you write specs and how do you do marketing? And then Kirsten created this element where she said, you know, she made them all, each one of them had to give a presentation to the entire office of their own work because architects have to do what we're doing right now. Like they have to be able to talk about their work in ways that's hopefully compelling to others. And at the time they would present to, you know, 20 people, but now they present to, you know, 150 people. And and, uh, it's an amazing experience, actually. And over the years, it's grown and many others in the firm have taken it over and made it better and better. And, and uh, it's gotten stronger. And people that do the program, they, uh, they tend to have a, a relatively easy time finding work. And many, it's been going on for so long. Many of them are, you know, are leading their own firms or in very substantial firms around the world. And uh, they've come from over probably 35 or 40 different countries, every state in the United States. And so it, it brings in this level of incredibly interesting people, smart and creative people, uh, constantly in the firm. And nobody really wants to stay an intern forever, which is why it's only six months long, because you, everybody wants to eventually become an architect and start to get things made. And so we found six months was the right period where they can be on projects and bring in really strong visualization skills, model making skills, and other things that they add to projects. So... There's other things that go on in the office culturally, but those are two that kind of jump out as um, probably specific to some extent to us, although I'm sure other firms do similar things. Alan, uh, before I want to get to some of the projects uh, that that I've been looking at. And um, before I do that, I just want to follow up on what Paul was asking. When you're looking at perspective, um, a new staff coming on, what is it that is, what are the, some of the first things that you're looking for in, in a candidate to join uh, also kind of? Yeah. Um, well, there, there's two types of candidates that we look for in general. There's the internship program, but again, it's only a six month program. So those people rotate and it's become fairly competitive. So there's probably 30 applications for every position that's offered in there. I think there's 12 positions uh, annually. So maybe 24 people a year. So hundreds and hundreds of people have actually done this program, which is kind of staggering to me as I mention it and think about it, actually and do the math in my head. Uh, and so for them, the visual portfolio is everything. And, you know, does it matter where you went to school? Sometimes. Does it matter where you work or had other jobs? Sometimes. But we're really looking at the visual representation of the work and the thinking. And, uh, and it's the visual portfolios more than anything for the internship program that get people in. So if, if anybody's interested and they go online and look at this, that pay strong attention to the ways that your work is, is represented. That's partially somewhat true also for anyone that applies for just a design profession. But, you know, we have a interiors design department, we have a landscape department, we have, you know, a large uh, cadre of architects that work here. And for them, it's more nuanced. We're, you know, we are looking at experiences and we are looking at, you know, where people have been and, and what they have done and how they can actually fit into the organization as well. I think almost everybody that comes to work here has a love of des- a deep love of design that that is inherent in the work and that uh, has to come across. And then they also have to, you know, they go through an interview process and we we hire people from across the country and sometimes they're around the world and sometimes those are done over the phone. But there also has to be a sense and we have a really good crew that's, uh, it's a team of people that's doing the hiring now. And there's a certain kind of person that doesn't work out well here. And that's someone who um, is, 
is sort of egocentric. And so I think they do look for and sort of personally self-involved and they tend to struggle. Whereas I think that our team is looking for a kind of generosity and that hopefully come across in the ways that people talk about their experiences and their work. And sometimes that can be evident in an interview, even when people are a little bit nervous. Um, before I want to ask about the Jewish Museum Berlin Kinder Museum, uh-huh. and uh, but first I, I have to ask um, <laughs> the Bob Dylan Center. First, first question is how does it get to be in Oklahoma? <laughs> is it? <Oklahoma? laughs> and, it's in Tulsa. And then, yeah. how, and then yeah. how did you how did you uh, get that project? <laughs> and you know I, I always follow that up with Have you ever been to Tulsa? And uh, well, let me ask Have you ever been to Tulsa? I have not. No. Well, you will, because there's going to be some amazing things going on there. The reason that the Bob Dylan Center is there is because that's where the Bob Dylan Archive is. And the Bob Dylan Archive was purchased by the George Kaiser Family Foundation. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, hearing their name on NPR and other places. They're an amazing organization. And they started collecting collections years ago. And so they have Woody Guthrie's collection. And then uh, Bob's became available. And they actually ended up purchasing the collection. And it's actually at the university in Tulsa, which is where the archive is currently living. But they had an international design competition to actually create the Bob Dylan Center, which will be located in downtown Tulsa. And part of that is, uh, I mean, I think that the Kaiser Foundation is it's an interesting organization that's worth studying. And uh, they have a tremendous interest in early childhood education, which is interesting to me, obviously. And they had an interest in, um, you know, in sort of the development of uh, women coming out of prison. And they have remarkable programs they work on. So it was curious for many, I think, that, uh, that they would purchase the Bob Dylan archive. But I think they're also committed to development in Tulsa and urban development and making it an interesting cultural place. So I think part of the idea was that uh, this would be a kind of attraction and would be compel people to come and live and work and kind of, they're doing many projects. They created a huge waterfront park that just opened recently or last year. It's an amazing project. And I think this is part and parcel with trying to enliven a city and a commitment to a city. So that's why uh, the Bob Dylan archive is located there. And it's, it's Bob's stuff. It's the things that he collected in his life that, I mean, I was personally surprised to find out that he saved virtually everything or that perhaps his manager saved virtually everything for decades. And it's an extraordinary collection of things, thousands and thousands of sort of artifacts and recordings and drawings and imagery. And it's an amazing, amazing piece. Was he involved at all in the project or was it just uh, no. I mean, I think that, so the, I think the question is, will Bob be involved? And the question is directly no. And if, if for people that know, or I doubt he will be, and the people that know or are into him and have studied him over the years, he's an extremely enigmatic character. He, <laughs> uh, It's a very hard person to understand in a particular way. He has reinvented himself so many times in his, you know, gosh, he's a 78 years old now, I think. So, you know, so many times his own career. And so, and he, uh, he's very elusive. And I, honestly, I, I suspect he's very shy. And so, uh, and, and, but you can't do a project like this. It would be such a burden if I thought that Bob Dylan was going to be looking over my shoulder. You know what I mean? It's like, you just couldn't do it. You couldn't get out of bed in the morning. So we're approaching the, I'm approaching the project as if uh, that's not the case. And so we, we entered this competition and I entered this with my partner, Tom Kundig, and uh, occasionally we pair up and this was a really great one. And we loved this design competition and we got 
you know, shortlisted and we couldn't believe it. And then we, we started developing schemes and designs and time. the project has changed since uh, the competition, but uh, it was going to be, it's um, Tom had come up with this brilliant design and, uh, and uh, we were taking on an approach to telling the story of Bob Dylan. That is not a singular story or, a, or in any way a monument to Bob Dylan, which would have been a mistake. And it's much more a, trying to create a cultural place that's interesting and um, that many, many versions of him and stories of him can actually be shared over time. And it becomes a kind of living archive where continue there, you know, the archive is just open. People are doing amazing research there. And why not have this be a platform for that continuing research into the life and works of this incredibly creative American. Enigmatic is a perfect description. <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine actually directed the the video or the commercial for Apple when the iPod first came out with Bob Dylan. And he literally had to get on a private plane with Steve Jobs and the crew and, and just take off before even knowing where they were going. They had to find out on the plane where Bob Dylan was because he was just so elusive. But yeah, it's he's an interesting character. Can we talk a little bit about the Space Needle project? How did that come about and, and how what was your approach to to, uh, you know, um, working on such a iconic structure? You know, what were what were some of the considerations? Yeah. Yeah. You know, t- there are times when your uh, your life or your career exceeds any expectation that you have ever held. And uh, and the Space Needle is absolutely one of those. It um the Space Needle was uh, looking to redo their visitor experience. They had done some perception tests and, and people were, the feedback they were getting from visitors was it was looking really tired. It didn't feel like the future. It felt like the past and the, you know, the, the you know, receipts would be declining. And, and so and the people that run and own the Space Needle are, are really smart and they just began to think about what they could do about that. And so they decided to redo the visitor experience and they were going to do some digital interactives and they were going to redo the website. And so they were working with a creative agency called Creature that was in Seattle at the time. And a friend of mine worked there. And they were like, you know, we need an architect to devise us on this, some of this stuff. And, and you know, it's, it's an iconic piece of architecture. We need someone that is a specialist in architecture. Like, you guys need to call Alan. And they were like, what do we need an architect for? Like, we can do this. We don't, that, that's a waste. And so they literally, so they had me come and make a presentation and they, and they, they've admitted to me that, you know, they were just checking off this box. They had no intention of ever hiring an architect, but I went in there with my colleague, Blair Payson, and we both kind of just pitched like, you know, we have no idea what you're thinking, but here's what this could be. And by the way, I studied with one of the original architects at the University of Washington named Victor Steinbrook and an architecture school and structures class. I had to make a model of the any building I want to. And I chose the Space Needle because it fascinated me structurally and, you know, shared certain things about the project and what we would want to do. And, and I could see uh, the CEO, Ron Siebert, kind of thinking. It's almost like you could see the menus and his brain scrolling up and down. And he said, you know, we were trying to get three glass boxes to put on the outside of the Space Needle. And we had to go before Landmarks and we were almost there. And it was the final vote. And it really changed the profile of the building. And there was some controversy, but it, they probably had the votes. And there was one person on the Landmarks panels and they, who said, you know, if we grant you this this year, what are you going to come back and ask us for next year? And I think in his wisdom, he withdrew the application right at that moment. And he wanted to think bigger, like, okay, if I get one shot at this, what are we going to do? And so his first task to us, to Blair and I, was to literally like, okay, let's see some sketches. Like, what what could we do? 
you have no limitations, don't even think about landmarks, just go nuts. So, you know, how fun is that, right? So we sat down and we drew up all these wild sketches and came back and presented them. And it was very kind of tongue in cheek. We were kind of laughing, like, like this is never going to happen. And they'd be like, whoa, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of compelling. Let's keep going. And so we built a three-dimensional model of the top of the Space Needle, which is a very interesting, it's completely circular. It's a, it's a fascinating structure. And then we literally, because it's a computer model, you can hit the delete button. So we just started to, you know, okay. And I tend to design in a kind of storyboard fashion, like you might for a film. So uh, we began to draw this vignettes of the visitors. So you come up in this elevator, it's a glass elevator on the outside of the building. You, you're getting a, your first view of Seattle. The elevator door opens and there's a wall there for people to line up for exiting. So let's delete that. And then you hit these kind of you know, skinny row of windows that are a view of Seattle surrounding the whole space. Like, well, let's remove the wall and make this floor to ceiling glass. And then we went outside and there's a security cage and there's this pony wall around the entire thing. It's like, like, erase it, let's replace it all with glass. And eventually we even got to the floor and it had a rotating restaurant. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been there in, in the past. In 1962, it was the second one in the world. And it was, and we were like, and frankly, and I believe it was Ron, the CEO, who suggested, you know, can we make that a glass floor? And so we began to do studies where we deleted the floor and we made the world's first rotating glass floor. And we would leave, the, Blair and I would leave these meetings, we'd be in the Uber or the Lyft on the way home and we'd be like, okay, what kind of odds do you give this project? And it, we would be like, I think we have like a 4% chance. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, I think we're up to like 11. And then like, mm. we have a 20% chance. But it wasn't until we began the landmarks process that we, um, and so, because we're radically, radically changing the, certainly the interior of the space and some of the exterior, and it's a designated landmark. So, you know, the uses of history uh, becomes a compelling question. And it wasn't until uh, we had five or six landmarks presentation and we worked really tightly with them. We wanted this thing to move. And there's a lot of strategies about how we did that, but it was then that I realized like it's gonna happen. And we have to really figure out the technical piece because like we're suddenly doing things that have never been done before. And this project is quite a bit different in terms of like uh, typology and scale that, you know, of the projects that I'm, that I am used to seeing coming out of Olson Kundig. Is that a true statement that, that it's quite a different project? Yes and no. I think that, you know, I think that firms, I think there's across the board, I think a lot of firms across the world would experience this. The perception of who you are and what you do is usually about five years behind where, where you are and what you're actually doing, or sometimes mm -hmm. even more than that. And I think that there are a lot of people who think that Olson Kundig designs residential architecture in the Pacific Northwest. And the truth of the matter is that 50% of our projects are sort of single family cabins and homes and art collectors homes. And, and that's that makes up half of what we're doing. But the other half is a whole variety of other project types, hospitality, tremendous amount of cultural projects, uh, uh, different things. And, and I think there are 35 ongoing projects around the world at the moment. So the actuality of what we work on. So in some respects, yes, it's, uh, or no, it, like, like the firm really is, has a kind of broad sort of cadre of things that we're working on and project types. And our website certainly represents that. But the Space Needle is a one of a kind in that it's it's a, it's a world monument. And even though it's privately owned, that everyone in Seattle thinks it's theirs and they believe the city owns it, for example. And so there's this huge responsibility as well as, you know, do I want to be the guy that ruined the Space Needle? You know what I mean? I mean, they, like those are the kinds of things that you wake up in the middle of the night, like, because uh, we were going to go pretty far in terms of what we were proposing. So in that respect, I think the Space Needle is a, 
unusual project. Well, the results are, are stunning. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to go to the Space Needle since you've done these updates, but... Um, My I, construction I, I, pass still works, although we aren't technically entirely finished with construction. But if either of you guys ever get to Seattle, please let me uh, take you up there. I would love to show it to you. And certainly come visit Olson Koenig's studio. Oh, I will take you up on that <laughs> offer for sure. Let's, let's do it. So, Alan, um, one of the things I, I want to tie back together um, is your beginning narrative, the story of you with uh, the work that you do with children. And one of the things that it must be awfully gratifying to be able to um, create spaces that respect children in such a way that brings the tactility of, of your, what I've always known uh, Olson Kunde to be, which is very rich in materials and, and, and um, you want to touch the surfaces and, and bring it to a scale that isn't often thought about. And most of the projects that I see um, that you've uh, had a hand in uh, with children really uh, respect that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you connected those two? And, and Well, I think that there's certain sort of things within Olson Koenig's DNA, which is everyone that works here has a deep love of craft. Uh, we love to take a big idea and take it down to details. We obsess about details maybe more than we should. Uh, there's an interest in kinetic architecture and making things that move. And there's, there's all these sort of initiatives that exist within the firm. And I, I wanted to, and as well as Jim Olson started working with artists. And the reason Tom and I both came to work for Jim in the old days was he had integrated art and artists and craftspeople into his practice in the 60s and 70s that was unlike what many anybody else was certainly doing in the area, with the exception of an interior designer named Jean Jungawar, who she was a miracle also. But so that kind of, it's that kind of DNA that I wanted to apply to children and what I felt I, I wasn't seeing. But I also, you know, in a way that being the elephant in the room piece is about distinguishing yourself. And so I like the idea that nobody in the office would seem to be particularly interested in working in children's museums, but I was passionate about it. So I went after it and invited myself to the Skirball and got a job. And then years later, in a book that they wrote about the project, they described how it was, in fact, our lack of experience and our just sort of robust creative proposals that uh, that they went with. And they were much more willing to take a risk because that was the kind of place they wanted to create. And that speaks to who they were. And it was a very difficult project. And they would admit that as well. And I know you're from L.A., Paul. Do you have children? I do. A 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. And we really, truly enjoyed the uh, the uh, Noah's Ark show at the Skirball. Cool. Yeah. So, again, it was unlike anything, I think, that had been done for children's museums. And we brought in all the you know, incredible puppeteers like Chris Green and Eric Novak. And, you know, brought in, there was just, just bringing in people to approach a project, that a ropes course designer. Like, it was just this ability to bring in this really a collective group of collaborators to help us create this, uh, this project. Oh, it was so well, well executed. It was, it was incredible. It was like an art, art exhibition. Well, it's, it's good to hear that because I think it appeals to adults as well as to children. But there was a key thing that they did, which is they sent the designers and the educators out to do research in the public schools in LA together before we even began to conceptualize the project. And we went out and I, I did this exercise that I now do on almost everything I do with children, which is we were having conversations with kids. They knew kids that went to the yeshiva, that the Skirball was very familiar with them. And, and they, that was an audience that they knew well, but they didn't know kids, you know, in other communities and other neighborhoods and frankly, other backgrounds. And so they sent us to those public schools and we met with kids and just to kind of find out, do you know anything about Noah's Ark and, 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 and finding out about the issues that, you know, that's was really mattered to the Skirball, like you know, diversity, inclusion, and quality. And so 
but I was, you know, came from a drawing background. So we gave kids these 11 by 17 sheets of paper and there were four boxes like you would see in a cartoon, like or a comic strip. And there were lines they could draw. And we said, okay, we want you to draw a picture of Noah's Ark and, and or you can write, but if you could draw pictures and tell us, just show us what you think the story is. And it was a way of seeing what was in their heads. And then I brought all the drawings back to Seattle and I had 75, we went to three different classes and I pinned them up in the studio. We looked at them and every single kid had drawn a ramp with animals going up the ramp. And it was abundantly clear that that was the visceral image for them that stayed with them and that was important. And so I literally stole this, you know, I took these kids' drawings, I stole their idea, I sketched up a kinetic conveyor belt where animals could be added, it would go through a window, it would fall through the arc and come out the bottom and reset itself. And it literally was what these kids had drawn. And in subsequent years, the Skirball has told me many, many times, if we were to do redo a project, or a portion of this project five more times, it would be that one because it is so popular with children. And so I paid a lot of attention to that and I used it on the Bezos Center for Innovation, for example, which is a project we did that was funded by Jeff Bezos and where I went, we got to kids early on and we try to get their input and then I've had tremendous success with just kind of trusting kids' instincts to kind of tell you what they're going to be excited about. Yeah, kids have an honesty that uh, is is hard to uh, get from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean the the personally, I mean our family, we went to the Noah's Ark show at at Skirball multiple times just because we. I mean it was it was such a such an amazing experience for the kids that we every time we had friends in town we would take them as well. So it was a huge success. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the new Bay Area Discovery Museum uh, while we're on the topic of uh, designing for children? I, I understand this is a remodel of a, uh, a STEM-based uh, campus. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So in the 1980s, some women in uh, Sausalito, there was a military campus, military base from World War One, where these leftover buildings were there. And it was at, and it literally was like right along the shore and there was a park and it became a national park. And they took it over and they made it, they decided to make a children's museum out of it. And it's been there ever since. And, um, and it, so it's a series of these sort of really terrific wood well, super simple wood uh, sort of storage buildings. And there was a, a shed for horses and, and uh, vehicles that the horses would pull around. And there was, you know, it was, it was, things were stored there and so on. But it's at the base. It's right there on the bay. And it's literally at the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge. So it is like one of the most extreme. And what's amazing is that children never get that real estate. They never get to be in the, I mean, when I worked in the daycare center, we were in a basement with no windows, you know what I mean? So for children to have not only these buildings, but also to have this landscape and park around them, again, there's very few children's museums or experiences that that could happen. Many years later, Karen Flynn has come in and she's became the director and she, uh, she and her staff are extraordinary. And it's one of the few children's museums that is actually a research facility as well as, as well as a children's museum. And they create their own white papers and they are really interested in early childhood development. And so working with them, I mean, I'm a former teacher and frankly, I haven't been in a classroom in many, many decades. So, but I, I, I kind of love working with museum educators and, and then things we're creating. So we've uh, been creating a STEM-based sort of museum experience, which uh, has been really fascinating. And it's actually going to start construction very soon. And so it, it's going to happen over a series of phases in the next couple of years. But um, anyway, it's a chance to do a, a campus for children that is kind of a 
great opportunity for me. Designing for children. I mean, what are what are some of the most important lessons you've learned through the experience of, of designing for children and working for children? So a lot of times with firms, if you want to move into a new sector, right, there's a certain type of work you want to do, but you don't have any experience whatsoever, then you have to compensate for that. And you have to either do it by entering competitions, which is something we do, or you have to do it by doing research. And there's a number of firms that have done publications on things. They've never built a project, but they've been invited to, you know, shortlisted competitions because of their research that they have done in a certain project type. So in the early days, we did some research because again, we didn't have anything else to work with. And we studied children's museums. And I think that the, the, the biggest mistake over the years has been that there are, when you look at, you know, 30 or 40 different children's museums, that some of them are great. I don't mean to say this is, you know, this is true across the board, but there are these certain similarities that exist that became for us adult cliches for what adults think children want or need. And so, you know, there are certain patterns. We noticed visual chaos for some reason was really important. There was no hierarchy in scale. There was, for some, you know, the worst ones would have, like have this dyslexia with, you know, like Toys R Us letters backwards and, 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 and that was just sort of painful to sort of see. But the best ones would be like the World War II, after World War II, the adventure playgrounds in Europe, which were just these bombed out lots where kids would go in there, take all of the, the, these leftover materials, frankly, from buildings that had been demolished and play with them and play with them for hours. So their, their attention spans would be incredibly long and for, they spent all day building. And you look at these photos and some of them look like crazy dangerous, but also, you know, incredibly exciting and kids are making their own playgrounds. There's probably 400 of those in the world at the moment and uh, only four of them are in the United States and that would be for uh, legal reasons, but they're the, the only one in the States that I visited was in, it's in the Bay Area, blocking on where it is, but, oh, Berkeley, it's located in Berkeley. But there's lessons that to be gleaned, I think, and um, a long-winded way of saying that I think the answer here is that children, if you observe children playing, they will teach you everything that you need to know about designing for them. I personally get that lesson every Christmas morning after my kids wake up and open these presents that we've been agonizing over buying for them and then realizing that they spend most of the day just playing with the with the boxes and the and the packaging oh no okay it's there it is right there have you guys ever remodeled your kitchens and there was that time on the block i remember growing up when somebody would remodel their kitchen and there'd be tons of cardboard in the refrigerator and the washing machine outside and then we you know we'd get out cutting tools and duct tape and watch the whole neighborhood spend all day building structures, houses, so on that are being driven by kids. So yeah. I, I think your Christmas analogy is, is, is sort of a case in point. And, you know, so why, you know, can you recreate that in the children's modality? And I think you absolutely can. I feel like we could talk for uh, many more hours, but I know we've got to wrap this up pretty soon. And there are a couple topics that have been uh, reported in the news in, in the last week that I would love to hear your your stance on. One is the issue of unpaid internships. It's been in the news a lot lately with the uh, Serpentine Pavilion and uh, the, the culture in Japan and how that, you know, and, and many, many firms in the U.S. And also, uh, given your work with an iconic building like the Space Needle, I'd be I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on the restoration of the Notre Dame Cathedral 
Yeah, and I know you have a connection with Bustler, so the competition I think is super interesting. So I'll get to that second. But in terms of internships, you know, again, I began to tell the story of our international internship program by saying how we mistreated an intern in a way that made us really turn on the dime and 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 create something that's very different. And so I have a very hard time falling into the realm of that. Uh, the unpaid internship uh, to me is it's just not a way that we would think about it. The interns have always been paid in our program, and they're paid for every hour worked. And uh, and so I think it's a really critical piece. And it's very, very hard in the early days. I, I remember my first internship, I was paid $2 an hour and I was working on a design competition for a guy. And and uh, I understand that's ex- how it's kind of exploitive that is, frankly. And so... So you're on the right side of history. Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, would I have done it? Would I do it today if I was in that? And there was just a place that I just... Would I, you know, I have taken those risks in my own career and I don't think it's a good model and I don't recommend it and I don't think it should happen. But would I do it as an intern if there was a place I just wanted to have that experience and I, I thought an investment in that. So I, I see it from both sides and it, um, but in general, as a practice, I think it's a bad idea for architecture firms, but I'd have to be honest and that, uh, you know, if I was, there was a place that I just really had to work and. I would probably make that happen somehow. So I'm ready to work for you for free. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> and you can start our first podcast. Which <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then what about the, uh, what about these proposals for the uh, Notre Dame? I, I mean, I imagine this is going to be a, uh, a topic of debate for many, many years. You know, what, what do you do with a, with a structure that has been partially destroyed that has such historical significance? So I've been really pushing uh, competitions in the firm and conversations with my partners, and we've decided to do more of an effort in it internally. And we think, you know, it's on the one hand, it's expensive and there's a ton of risk involved. But um, at the, at the flip side of that is that you can have, you can really expand your opportunities, move to parts of the world you've never worked before, work on project types you've never done. So, you know, it's an issue that's super interesting to me. And I have to say, you know, we all were heartbroken when we, everybody was sending around the images of the, of the fire. And we have some interns who are, are from Paris and hearing from them and, and communicating with them during the day. And so th- that aspect was obviously challenging for everybody in the entire world. But I was fascinated that a day or two later that they announced that there would be a competition. And you, you're in the world of competitions more, way more than I am. So I, I'm curious if you have any updates on this, but it hasn't been announced yet to my knowledge. But the idea that they were going to take and, and study the question, because the de facto reaction would be that you should simply restore it and create a kind of Disney version of, of what it once looked like exactly and verbatim. And they were the competition, which I think is so compelling, is that they they wanted to ask the question, should that happen? And this would be at least a chance to examine through the eyes of many, many designers around the world what that could look like. You know, there was a great that, you know, Sharon and Mark, Sharon Johnson and Mark Lee, I think you guys interviewed at one point and, mm-hmm. and it was a great podcast interview, by the way. Oh, thank you. They asked the question about the uses of history at the Biennale last year and or two years ago, I can't remember last year. And uh, I think that that's, it, it's that exact question. And frankly, it was the question that we asked ourselves on the Space Needle, which is we weren't going to do it verbatim. We weren't going to do to, to keep it in frozen in time. And I sent the competition announcement one of the architects in the office sent it to me amir and then i um sent it to my partners and said uh, you know we should have a conversation about this and because it is one of the most interesting questions of this time but i'm curious what you guys think because you're in the 
competition realm? Like, what do you think of it? You know, I think it's one of the most difficult topics to really take a, a firm stance on because it's, uh, I mean, it's still the, the, the uh, destruction of, of the cathedral is still so fresh and there are not too many precedents of, of something of this kind of uh, historic importance being, you know, partially destroyed and and uh, facing, you know, an inevitable restoration. So personally, I really don't know. And I think that I think, I, as you said, I think the i the 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 fact that this competition was announced so quickly, so that ideas could start generating, because it's definitely instigated a lot of discussion among the architect. Uh, architecture community about what should be done. A lot of negative feedback about, you know, Foster's proposal. But this is a great way to get get started in in this discussion. I think it's probably going to take quite a while until until a, a, a real solution is is uh, figured out. I think you're right, but it's the the absolute reason to have design competitions if you think about it. And exploring the idea and thinking about the idea larger doesn't mean that you won't go back at the end and actually restore it in a verbatim sort of reconstruction. But the fact that it was explored in terms of what it actually means, that to me seems really relevant and important. I agree. Um, Ken, do you want to uh, ask your oh, famous sure. last two questions? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, uh, what are you uh, reading and what are you listening to these days? Uh, da, 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 da. I have been looking at architectural monographs. I think that I'm actually studying them and I'm in the process of, of creating a couple of them. And so I'm curious if there's any that you guys think are good. In my mind, the monograph has a kind of format or a formula as I've studied design monographs. And this came to me when I was at the Biennale in Venice and I was in the James Sterling pavilion that has the, like every monograph of every architect that's ever been created. And there just seems to be a pattern and, and the creation of, of perhaps a new book about Space Needle or projects we're doing with kids. Um, I was hoping that we could actually generate our own books. And so I've been studying a variety of different publications that describe design. And so um, there's an incredible book from the, the Vatican show that happened at the Met uh, a, a year or two ago, or maybe it's last year. It was where the, the Vatican created a fashion in the Fashion Institute and the publication of the book they did there. And the ways that they did photography and what this blew my mind. And so that's been really inspiring. And um, Daniel Arshram, I think, worked with the fashion designer Virgil Abloh and uh, created uh, their latest compendium, which is a brilliant book on the, the sculptural works. And uh, and then, uh, again, doing a lot of study of what the ways that architects do it. I actually think it would make an interesting episode for you guys to actually talk about the architectural monograph as a, because there is kind of a formula in the way that architects do it. And I imagine there's more ways to tell that story. Absolutely. I'm equally interested in that. And that's part of, we're actually doing a series of, of um, events at, we have a, a space in downtown LA that sells books and objects and we have events um, and we've been doing a uh, kind of a focus on the architectural monograph, uh, because I think it is quite a fascinating type of publication. Yeah, I think that sounds great. I think in terms of, I'm also doing some study right now because we've just been uh, awarded a new project, which will be to do the world's first facility for Recompose, which is a woman named uh, Katrina um, Katrina Spade. She's a satellite and she's an architect that went to architecture school and her master's thesis was on human composting and turning human bodies into organic nutrient soil 
And she has designed a vessel that will actually do this process in three months. And it, you know, it sounds crazy and far-fetched, but I think she's literally going to change the world. And uh, last Friday, the state of Washington legislature has just approved this concept. And she's like to been this sort of marching this idea across and they are now moving to the sort of uh, what the licensing of this will actually be but it literally i think could change the world it's one of the it's another alternative option to burial that and this will be the first facility in the world will be located in seattle so we're beginning to work with her on the design of that but it's i'm doing a ton of research in death and dying and sounds like a buzzkill to end the podcast but just fascinated with you know, cremation is a very toxic scenario, but in burial, we are out of land, you know, twice the amount of people are born that die every day. And so coming up with alternatives is, is sort of a necessity for the future. And so she's got me pretty deep in uh, the aspects of uh, what it means to create a sort of organic alternative and what it means to provide the first facility. Uh, a lot of death. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating topic. She would make yeah. for an interesting podcast also, actually. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> And what about listening? Are you listening to anything uh, on rotation these days? You know, you know, part of the reason, I'll be honest, I was equal parts uh, kind of terrified of doing this for the reasons I stated at the beginning, because you've taken away all my crutches about how I, uh, I usually <laughs> present and talk. And But also really excited, because I've been fascinated by podcasts. And when, when I listen to a good one, it stays with me and I send it to other people. I'm uh, we're we're probably going to pursue the pulse competition it's an international competition for the pulse memorial and that's the crit that we're going to be having in the office tonight so i'm you know i'll be walking out of here and going in and presenting that in a few minutes but there is a podcast and i'm trying to remember what it was that it really kind of changed my thinking about it and it was benjamin walker's theory of everything do you guys know that one i've, I've definitely heard of that yeah and there's an episode on, it's called Institutionalized. So literally like listen to this, someone in the office sent it to me because they know I'm, I'll listen to anything that they think is good. And this one, it's about the Stonewall riots and the notion of memorials. And um, and it completely changed my thinking about how, if we do enter this competition, how we, how we would change or revise it. So the episode is Institutionalized and it's Benjamin Walker's. I know you're probably asking for music, but I have terrible musical taste. You no, know, pod, podcasts, they definitely count and that sounds like a good one um i am a podcast uh obsessed individual so i'm gonna have to look that up would you give me one is there one great podcast that is not an Arconnect podcast that is design related that you think is spectacular what would what would you recommend to me design related well i mean there's obviously 100 visible that's kind of the default you know I, I i don't listen to that many design michael beirut's podcast is really good is it safe to say that there are not a lot of great design podcasts yes yeah that is safe to say definitely and that that field is open and people listening should take that to heart because it would be great and i'm amazed at so few people who actually do them and i think it may go back to your your comments in the beginning that uh it is hard for architects and designers to to limit their their uh, thoughts to words, you know, and by by taking away the visuals. But um, yeah, I, you know, I listen to a lot of a lot of different types of podcasts. Um, first, I, I love the podcast Heavyweight, which is by a fellow Canadian, uh, Jonathan Goldstein, uh, who is uh, it's I, I kind of consider it to be almost like the Seinfeld of comedies, but it's not, it's, it's, it's really great. It's by uh there's a podcast network called Gimlet that has a lot of really good podcasts. It has been a real pleasure talking to you and getting to learn more about you and, and uh, the work behind one of my favorite firms in the world. So um, thanks. 
Bye, guys. Bye, Alan. Bye. Well, that's our conversation with Alan Maskin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks, and talk to you next time.